The sci-fi horror weirdness of Skullface Astronaut is in its third decade of lo-fi B-movie madness, creating indie horror flicks like Drifter, Beyond the Wall of Fear, Blood Creek Woodsman, plus the brand new Channel 99. Strange Monsters, Lovecraft Adaptations, Final Girls, and Bucket's Blood. They're all here on DVD, streaming, and even limited edition VHS. Check out SkullFaceAstronaut.com for trailers, pics, and even production and convention diaries. That's SkullFaceAstronaut.com. In 1979, the first issue of Fangoria was released into the world. It's been over 40 years and Fangoria is better than ever. Each issue bringing you 100 pages of exclusive, carefully curated content honoring horrors past, present, and future. These articles and interviews will never be published online, so the only way to read them is by getting your hands on a physical, collectible copy of your own. We can't give anything away because we want the experience to be a surprise, but we can safely say you do not want to miss a single page. Head to Fangoria.com to learn more and subscribe. And while you're there, make sure to enter promo code COLORS, that is C-O-L-O-R-S, to save 25% off your yearly subscription. And welcome to Colors of the Dark. I'm your co-host, Dr. Rebecca McKendry, and with me is Elric Kane, who is now COVID-free. I was always COVID-free. You were always COVID-free. Uh, just just be, your- I, I just had COVID in the home. In the, the home, home that I was running the house. After. A member of your family got it. So yeah, yes. we had a scramble last week. But um, I managed to keep other people code free, which makes me some sort of hero in some countries. I love that you had your kids dad, yeah. solo. Because I know Selena, you, you kind of, you know, you quarantined her to yeah. part of the house. And then you had the boy solo for a week and a half. So I can only I picture it. like cereal bars for dinner and everyone's going to school in like three day old underwear. I had that shit locked down. I was on it. <laughs> it was gourmet meal every time. No pizza, no games, no pajamas, <laughs> no iPads Read between the lines, five o'clock, between the lines, <laughs> however you wish. Uh, <laughs> Those are my but, favorite nights. Pizzas for dinner. Yes, you can have your iPads. I know it's five o'clock. Just do it. <laughs> but I will say what is relevant about the story is that the second it was over. The second I was allowed to leave the house, I went straight to a movie theater to watch Malignant on the big screen. Only person in the movie theater. Movies aren't dead, baby. <laughs> <laughs> but the pulse is weakening. Um, and uh, and that's what I did. I'm going to pass no judgment until we talk about you. I assume watched on the HBO of the I mind. did. See, because I am the opposite where I debated going to a movie theater because I was invited by a couple of different people to go see it in the theater. And then I was like, but it's already on my television oh. for free. And then um, and I can eat what I want and not have to pay to park and all of that fine stuff. And so I ended up just watching it on HBO Max the night that it released. You're killing cinema, Becca. You're the I am not. I am not. I am celebrating the fact that we got a major release James Wan film released direct to HBO Max on same day. That is awesome. That will that alone will keep me with HBO Max because um, it wasn't James Wan that as well. It wasn't James Bond. That was Paul Verhoeven <laughs> and Helen Lauder, wasn't it? And De Palma, right? A little bit of De Palma. 
There's probably some. I definitely saw some heaven water. I even saw saw some some bellsman. I saw some soul four in there. Dark castle. There was there was a lot. So let's dig into malignant. So I have to say, even spoiler free though, we can't ruin the ending. We have to somehow talk about it without. We will not talk about the ending. Um, we will kind of allude to some inside jokes if you've seen it. Um, parkour Samara. But that said, um, this movie was not what I was expecting. Um, This is the type of movie that they let you make after you have literally made like a billion dollars for the company. They're like, yeah, yeah, you keep turning But people never do it, right? No, people then would might be allowed to, but usually by then you don't want to do it anymore. This is literally like, I just saw like an executive just kind of waving his hand going, yeah, do your thing, do your thing. You're bringing us another three Conjuring films, right? Yeah, like go do your thing, go do it. If this makes you happy, just go do your little thing. Um, And this- how this movie exists at a $10 million budget, like I will never know. Um, but and, I love it. And uses it. every cent of it. I mean, it, it's, every it's, cent. An, it's an amazing looking film. It's a technical marvel. It's a movie that if I had watched it on Netflix and I did, and it wasn't a James Wan film, like if it just said Larry somebody, Larry Clark, I don't know, that's an actual filmmaker. But that's if an actual film. Yeah, yeah. But if it was just a, somebody, I probably wouldn't have kept watching, not because I didn't like the start, but because the tone of the acting and some of the heightenedness there's a certain point where i might question whether i wanted to keep watching but because it's a james wan film i knew whatever i'm watching is intentional whatever happens and so that was enough to get me you know through some of the bumps that i was like unsure about and so even just going into the acting the very opening scene our cold open the acting in it was so over the top and such an artifice that I was literally sitting there waiting for the camera to pull back and reveal that other characters were watching it on television. Because yeah. it literally felt like the type of acting that you would see in a movie that other characters are watching on television where it just feels very performative. Not and just performance, the it types. It's a fucking movie. Yeah. It's also the types of characters are mm-hmm. like stock, like the stock cop is a stock character and the yeah. husband at the start seems like the abusive wife singlet kind of so it's really weird but clearly there's a per- i can't say i fully understand the purpose of that choice except that maybe because the movie goes to such a big place big wild place that he wants to kind of bring you in and and obviously a love letter to things he loved in the 90s and things like that but i it is still a little perplexing because honestly that feeling you had at 10 minutes i also had about an hour in when one of the twists was starting to clarify i was like oh at some point we're gonna pull back and realize this is just how a character sees the world. It's not real. And when the movie, when you get to the, this isn't even spoiled, but by the end of the movie, no, this is the real world. This, this is, is the real the world. world. This is the Which world is the movie exists in. Pretty the crazy. The world exists in this very artificial sense that is a love letter to like 12 different things. Like it was yeah. 1990s movies. There's a lifetime kind of drama sleaze element to it. Um, it feels like a Frank Henenlotter film at times. It feels like a De Palma film at times. Dark it's got Man. Giallo. There's dark a dark man. man. There's a lot of Dark Man. Yeah, a lot it. of Dark Man. Um, a lot of um, House on Haunted Hill remake. Oh, God, yeah. <laughs> With that, the amazing, <laughs> the amazing asylum on the cliffside is one of the funniest the towards the end where the character drives towards it it is laugh out loud funny because there's no way 
you could have done that seriously. Like it's no, just wild. There is. And I even tweeted about that one where it's like, you know, she literally goes to the shutdown insane asylum to get yeah. the box of exposition <laughs> and then describe Great. it to the characters on the phone in a driving sequence. Like that is, it's breaking cinema rules, but it's yeah. following along with these cinema rules that we've established because they got so overused in other films from the nineties and the seventies and things like that. That's and, it. There's um, some very realistic scenes. There's a prison scene. That's very realistic, very grounded. <laughs> Uh, very grounded in every time period of the history of humanity in one prison. <laughs> it was literally every exploitation character from every exploitation movie ever. In I want to hear the director point. commentary just for that sequence because I am so fascinated. And also, a lot of people didn't pick it, but it's Zoe Bell. It's Zoe Bell playing a character named Scorpion. Wow. And she is something. <laughs> and, and I only picked it because her accent popped through. Just one moment I heard the Kiwi come through and I was like, oh my God, she's unrecognizable. Yeah. Uh, and it was like Beyonce dressed as Cleopatra Jones. Yeah, yeah, but it was like this contemporary, like very stylized is? version. It was just... The movie is just this bonkers batshit mess. And it's been really polarizing in that. Like even just seeing people on Twitter being like, this was the worst thing I have ever seen to people like, this was brilliant. This is the movie of the year. And yet um, I contain those multitudes, if that makes sense. Like, and and I could not for the life of me, it's one of the first movies this year, I couldn't letterbox right straight away because I was like, I had fun. I had a good time in the movie theater, but I also was like, but is this a good movie? I don't know. And then the next day I was like, oh, I really like it. And I went up a star, yep. half a star. And then the next day I was like, yeah, but I don't know if it's good. Oh, God, <laughs> I no. And I'm still, I and remember, I text you right after I watch it. And my yeah. text literally just said, I really don't know how I feel about this. Aside from what the fuck did I just watch? I don't know how I feel about it yet. And even now, like, is it good? I don't know. It's like showgirls good. Yeah. Where and and I think that you immediately called it where you were like it's literally showgirls like in a horror sense where so much of it feels so over the top that you're like is this accidental it, or did you intend this like it feels like it would have to be accidental but at the same time we assume because it's James Wan it was all incredibly intentional it has to um, be yeah it has to be and it pays off in the I'm honestly like even somebody who doesn't like it I I had a friend who didn't enjoy the film but like even they had to say like it's an incredible thing it builds to, and it's a huge leap, uh, you know, of movies that we all like from our childhood too. And just, it's so wild and committed to that wild mm -hmm. leap. And so technically accomplished and how it puts it together that how can you not have fun? So I, I had a lot of fun and oh, yeah. I've kind of gotten to a point this year with this and my next pick where it's like, you know, if I really enjoy something, I don't know if I want to always overanalyze. And I think one yeah. of the things Twitter can ruin films is, it's the fact that everyone has to have an opinion and has to go into the politics of everything. And I'm like, well, sometimes the movies just, you've either felt it or you didn't and, and you had a good time or you didn't. And I definitely had fun. So to me, that's a pass no matter yes. what. You know? And I will say a lot of the, the, the people, um, especially even with my students, the ones that I've seen throwing a lot of vitriol at this film, they went in wanting what we have come to know as a James Wan film. They went in wanting cool ghost jump scares. Hey, that nun's really creepy. Look at that weird mirror. And um, when it didn't deliver, they were angry because they felt like they had in some way been promised something by just having his name on it that they had then been denied. Like it was some great magic trick. And in that sense, I'm like, oh, hell yeah, James Wan. I'm glad that you did this because I, I mean, we've seen it for year, decades where, I mean, even John Carpenter has spoken about how it sucks to get kind of pigeonholed into, oh, this is the type of movies that you make. And then this is probably like Big Trouble, like, right? Yeah. 
I mean, yeah. like, like in terms of when Big Trouble came out, I'm sure a lot of people are like, what the hell is this? Like, yeah. as me as a kid, thought it was the greatest thing ever. But like for his career in that moment, and he had had a few movies that hit that mm-hmm. kind of thing that are all classics now, which is the wild thing. And this, I have zero doubt. I'll tell you this. And I knew it the second it ended. This movie will be in the zeitgeist for the next 50 years. This isn't just a one weekend movie. This is a, me- a movie that because of some of its crazy campy kind of uh, performance stuff at the top and then actually delivering and being a big movie, people will be watching this forever because it's a big movie. It's going to, it's going to entertain people for a very long time. So it really doesn't matter if some critics like I didn't really like it. It's like, it doesn't matter. <laughs> the movie's going to go bigger than you. You know, it's, it's, it's a cult movie born on delivery. In some your, your children are going to discover this movie and, and give it, you know, everyone's going to be wearing malignant T-shirts, ironically, in 30 years. So, could be, um, could be. But either way, we'll that was good. And I'm, I'm glad he changed up and good for him. To, oh, my God. Yeah. Um, no, that's I'm still not going to watch Aquaman. Sorry. No interest. <laughs> it's OK. Not doing my it. kids like it. We watch I might watch part two, though. That looked kind of cool. Movies. This sounds yeah. cool. <laughs> okay, so what else? You also watched Candyman, which I have not seen yet, and that's a horrible tragedy that I need to fix right now. I know I wanted yeah. to go with you. You, you, I like, know. you don't. You're not my movie friend anymore. I am so yeah. freaked out by movie theaters. Don't say but that. There's no one there. I, so, I went to a movie, and I'm the only one there. Every, I, both movies. I was the only person in both. Maybe you just need to travel out to where I am to go see the movies. Because I think I there's do. no one. And I mean, I'm not exaggerating when I say I saw both those films alone. I think Candyman had two girls coming at the last minute. Malignant does the only person in the theater. So because I go at weird times, I try not to go like at the, the, you know, the Friday, I go on a, I do Tuesday night or something. And, um, I've been to one movie since the pandemic, and I can't even remember what I saw. It wasn't even hard. No, no, we did see escape room. I've been to one other one Mm. at the theater, um, the big AMC, the big AMC Mm. 16 in Burbank. And I went like on a Saturday afternoon and it was so packed. And I was just like, I, freaked out this was just yeah. wild um and since then i've been like i just don't know if i can do it but yeah um that said if if i journey out your neck of the woods i would definitely see um we just have to find some weird theater. places yeah i mean i thought um look a Candyman two or not Candyman two it's two and three this is Candyman, whatever Candyman. Um, nia da costa's a candy man uh look i've seen again i've seen polarizing opinions on this important this movie made bank Malignant didn't make bank. Malignant did, and now it's largely probably because it was HBO at the same time, but it didn't make uh, a lot of money. It did okay. Uh, Candyman made bank. Uh, a first woman to have a was it first woman or first black woman to have a number one film at the box office? I can't remember what the stat there was, but it was a big deal. That's um, great. I actually really really like this movie and uh, the one thing that was bothering me right before it came out my expectations lowered because it was delayed for so long so i assumed oh and then it wasn't reviewed for early so i was like oh they're hiding this this is going to be a dump it kind of came back that's what i uh, was worried about because they also yeah. weren't doing a lot of press screenings no it just suddenly it just kind of suddenly popped back up and i was like oh okay so I, I lowered my expectations but um and i have seen a lot of people whose taste i respect really not like this movie um it was it was honestly one of the most magical things for me of the pandemic pandemic was i saw Candyman in the movie theater when i was 13 or 14 14 i think mm-hmm. was when it came out and it was one of my favorite films i'd ever seen at that point you know just it was a magical film the way it uses score the w- the way bernard rose shoots the film to kind of pull you closer it's a bit like a tractor beam between um the two characters in that film and, and the romantic angles and what was so cool and i'm not a big fan of either of the sequels i think they're both pretty silly and mm-hmm. this film instantly the use of music the way it shoots chicago and the way it approached a new story that connects to the old story 
uh, it felt it's actually probably one of my favorite direct sequels I've seen in this way that has become obviously the popular way, including Halloween and things like mm-hmm. that to pick up a story 30 years later or whatever. This was the first time where they did certain things with the aesthetics that transported me personally back. And the polemic about the film is where I just have no interest. I, I saw a lot of people online saying, Oh, it's just somebody's essay or it's just a political essay or the, it's like, no, I was not seeing it through that lens as I was watching it. That stuff's all there because how can you not make a movie about mm-hmm. uh, that? Especially if, uh, with a character like Candyman in the setting that it's at, you have to take it on squarely through a 2021 lens. But I never felt like that was uh, being hit over the head. I always felt like I was watching a really finely crafted horror film that had a lot of the love letter and tones of the original. I'm trying not to, I don't want to spoil anything for you, mm-hmm. but also it did something really cool. I thought with the mythos that incorporated these other ideas of other visions of Candyman. That's probably all I'll say in the spoiler territory that I thought was such a good idea. And it really, honestly, this is one of my favorite movies of the year. I, I really, really enjoyed myself. Um, again, part of it, I think I was a little giddy on just the, the, the feeling of being transported back to the Candyman that I remembered. Cause it was that same world, even if it's not, the exact story. I wouldn't want the same story. They already nailed that story. So I think she she did a really great job. Um, there's a few images that this is, it doesn't really spoil anything, but there's a Candyman kind of uh, where all it is is bees on the face of the body. And, and it's a, it's that alone to me could have sparked more sequels where that's all you see. That's the new boogeyman is, is, and so there's moments of that, but there's also a really cool use of the kind of art scene in Chicago. And usually I, I'm the person who hates that shit in movies. I hate when it's like, let's go to the art gallery and, the, and everyone's talking about art. I always find that to be the, the most kind of BS uh, stuff that happened in a lot of eighties horror films. For some reason, even that worked for me in this, but I have a, a lot of friends who were much more middling on it. So I don't know where it stands overall, but I know it was a success and I know, um, I thought it was uh, fascinating, and I, I'd be surprised if you didn't enjoy it. You, you, there's, it's not per- a perfect movie, but very few are. Um, but tonally, I think it is very consistent, and you know, opposite of *Malignant*, obviously, in a lot of ways. But um, I really dug it. So I'm, I'm actually, it's one of those movies I want to see a second time because um, I think there was a lot of throwbacks to the original story that were really interesting too. Excellent! Oh my gosh, I can't wait to dive into that one. I think it's pretty soon that it's hitting. It might even be VODs. I saw that it was rushing to VOD, which is a really smart move while there's still hype. It's always kind of difficult to like rebuild up hype for a movie. Um, I think this is the model. If if I'm the studio, I'm doing two to three weeks in a theater just so you can make that initial hype money and then go straight to VOD. Like Malignant did two weeks in a theater. It would have made a bunch of all the horror people would have paid to see it. You know, so I don't know, but I mean, like, we don't know how much HBO Max made off pushing all these people to HBO Max. Like right now, yeah. you know, some but they of still would have made some of that money, you know, they subscribe to HBO Max just to see Malignant or Conjuring 3. Yeah. Um, so, I mean, but that's still early. Two or three weeks is still like yeah. it used to be months and months and months. So I think that they just have to find some in between ground. I think Dune. Well, it'll be interesting with doing because Dune's mm-hmm. clearly designed to be a big screen thing, not to ever have been yeah. at home, and now it's going to largely be seen at home. So I will be curious to see how that, what the reactions are there. You know, I so. think that all of the studios are kind of prepping for the demise of the cinema, not the demise, I'll say the decrease of the cinema. Um, and that most of us have gotten more comfortable watching stuff at our home. I feel like all of the different studios are prepping for that. And so it is kind of becoming like a land grab. But they're learning that they might be wrong. Every week, (laughs) something makes a bunch of money in the theater and they realize, oh, maybe we screwed up by not putting that. So that's the tough part there. There's just all this money still to be made in that avenue. 
that that there's I think a lot of people are losing money on their streaming things. They mm-hmm. just are doing it because they need to build that platform. You know, they need to compete with Netflix. So they're willing to lose some money for a while. But I, I do think there should be a middle ground. And we'll see, especially with the movies with an actual theatrical demand. Most movies. Yeah it wouldn't matter. An indie film, no one really probably minds where they see it. So we'll see. I, I think it's a work in progress, but I am still on the side of theaters and big screen because it really makes, I mean, for me, it still makes a, there is a huge, I don't care. People always go, but I have a big, big screen and great sense of some. It's like, it is not even close. I'm sorry for me that seeing even alone in a theater with a giant, massive screen, that movie's playing. If I have to go to the bathroom, it's playing. If I go out for a drink, I'm missing it. It is important. But if I do that at home, I'm still the boss. And it doesn't, it, to me, it's just that they're, they're almost different mediums, weirdly enough. Um, but, you know, that's me. I'm old school. I'm a dinosaur. Whatever. I don't know. I like sitting on the couch in my sweatpants and my fuzzy socks, eating a bowl full of edamani or whatever the fuck I want to cook. That you know. Yeah, but you're missing the popcorn uh, with me. <clears throat> I you know? do miss popcorn. I'm going to start do. eating peanut M&Ms again. And the no, movies. I, I stopped for you. <laughs> I stopped because we used to go to movies, but now we don't. It's I can true. just go back to it. I can start eating peanuts. <laughs> oh, no, not the peanuts. Not the yellow ones. Um, well, I binged TV. And so I don't have a lot of titles to report on because, oh my God, did I ever binge. Um, as you commented last night, I went through all of my biz docs. So I did yeah. like the Lulu Rich one. I did um, the WeWork documentary last night, which are not hard, but I was yeah. still fascinated by both of them. But the series that I have become obsessed with um, and had the most fun with uh, during our time was Evil, mm. which I'm I'm now just imploring you to watch because it is so good. Um, Evil, it's a CBS show originally, but the first season landed on Netflix. And now the second season is available on Paramount Plus, which I subscribed to just to get that second season of Evil, um, which is how the system is working. There. Yeah, I did it for some. What did I do it for a couple weeks before that? I did it for, oh, a quiet place. Too. A quiet place. Yep. I did. And it I thought I was so time. smart. I told everyone, I'm like, hey, you can just get it for a week, two weeks and not pay any money. And then, of course, you forget. And then you get charged and then you forget again. And then the Paw Patrol movie comes on. You have to stay on for that. Oh, God. We watched the Paw Patrol movie as well. Yes. Um, they got a new That's member get, yeah. I saw. That's great. Yeah. yeah. We had to watch the Paw Patrol movie. Yeah, but they're raising the Alaskan pup. It's not cool. They- <laughs> There's a whole Twitter I liked, campaign. I liked the new member. I liked the new member. She was cool. She was she, 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 she. Um, but anyway, Paw Patrol. That's a whole other podcast yeah. where Elric and I break down Paw Patrol episodes like, um, and how annoying the mayor is. Um, the Paul Pod has going to have its day. Paul Pod. No, <laughs> no, that, that chicken. Chicoletta. Chicoletta deserves her own oh, yeah. show. A That's spinoff. True. Anyway, um, but evil. So evil is fucking awesome. And I posted about it on Twitter. And all of a sudden, there were all these people that were like, oh, my God, is it not like the best horror show that has come out in years? And I don't think it's getting much love. Like, as I've just been talking casually with people, everybody's like, what is it? Um, so as I said before, first season is on Netflix. Definitely check it out because you will be hooked. And then the second season is now on um, Paramount+. Plus. The kind of elevator pitch of it is it is X-Files for religious phenomena. Hmm. It is a priest, and this is going to sound like a bad joke, a priest in training, a clinical psychologist who does not believe in religion, and a kind of blue-collar contractor who specializes in technology are all three hired by the church to go and investigate religious phenomena. So a lot of times they are going in to determine if this person is truly 
possessed? Like, does the church need to come in and do an exorcism or are they faking it? Or, you know, that sound that they say is the demon talking to them. Is it really just wind coming through their window in a weird way and things like that? Um, But it's always way more than that. So it's got a monster of the week quality where they are investigating these, you know, oh my God, I'm seeing angels or, you know, so-and-so can see the Virgin Mary in this thing at midnight every night. And so is the tone uh, before you, is the tone serious or is it calm? It's very much in the same tone as um, I will say X-Files. It does not take itself seriously. Um, It is not like a heavy religious thing. Mm. Like it very much has this kind of a lightness to it. And that comes in with a lot of the demons. Now, I will say there are so many amazing scare sequences in this. Like, honestly, there's some moments where I have jumped in the show. Mm, But the way that they portray demons in general, it's just ingenious. Like, it's my favorite part of the show are where they bring in demons and kind of how they work and everything like that. Um, It's much different from Supernatural, but Supernatural is a really good tonal comparison, actually. I watched it. They take themselves seriously, but it is still a levity to the show. But they're not um, playing for even, jokes. They're yeah, not playing. They're not playing for jokes, but there's a levity to the show. Okay. And so I have absolutely loved this so much so that I researched the creators. It's a husband and wife team. Um, the husband wrote Phantom of the Mall and The Nest. Oh. Um, he went on to do The Good Wife. So great job there. But yeah, his roots, Phantom of the Mall and The Nest. And um yeah, Isn't it Eric one, Phantom of the Mall or Eric's Eric? I think it's Eric's Revenge, Eric's but yeah, Revenge. Phantom of the Mall. Colon, Eric's Revenge. Um, But yeah, this has just like literally, and and this kind of speaks to how good it is. For the past two weeks, every single time I have sat down and said, okay, I'm going to watch a movie tonight. No, I just really want to see where evil's going. Like it has just dominated my brain. TV runs our life. I just want to keep watching it because I'm loving it so much. Like every single episode, I am just captivated by um so evil the second season is even better than the first okay oh uh, yeah I'll, i will I'll, i think i'll watch the first one just to see because i've, I've finished a couple tv shows recently and uh i try to stay away from tv sometimes just because it does do that it really it's so good that it'll often just break into any time you have to watch movies which is tough let me ro- roll out two m- quick ones on movies that way we can do more tv because oh, i did yeah, lo- i did watch some of your tv i don't get hooked in tv that's a thing. Like you just I, said, you just said you got hooked on. Evil. Oh, this one, but oh, like okay. intermittently, yeah. I watch the first episode of a billion shows, and I will watch whatever the new murder mystery with Martin Short and Steve Martin is on Netflix. Mm-hmm. I or that's on Hulu. Yeah, I watch two thinking. episodes of yeah. that. Like I infamously will start a show, watch two episodes, and then go, "Meh, I'm going to watch this instead." Um, and hop around a lot. Like I have seen one episode of most TV series. Well, that's um, a better me, endorsement then. Yeah, for me to say, oh my God, this is all I want to watch and I'm staying with it. It's a damn good show. So, um, All right, I will promise to watch at least the first one. And that's on Netflix, so that's easy. Okay, uh, Breathe 2, directed by Rado Sayagues, who was the writer of all the other Fetty films, um, including mm-hmm. Breathe 1. Um, here's the thing, guys. Don't um, breathe too. 
don't breathe to. Yes, breathe to. I'm going to call it breathe because uh, it's like you're giving it a cool little hit because name there. Before you cancel to. it, you're going to need to take a breath because it's very easy to cancel. Um, oh my this, god! Don't this breathe might be the, to. <laughs> might be the easiest movie in this. So okay, we've I all was seen. Really confused by the trailer on this yeah, one. Sorry well, to cut you off. Where I was watching the trailer, going, but wasn't his character in the first one? Uh, uh, you know what? I'll, I'll see the where turkey you're going. baster in the first one was actually for turkey. He had no ill will towards woman. There's nothing rapey at all about it. Um, no, I, I, I am lying. Uh, that's what is utterly unfathomable about this movie is on the, on the surface. This is actually quite a fun late night. It's, it's almost as well made as the first. It's bonkers all the way bonkers. Uh, the character stuff's fun. It's, uh, you know what it feels like? It's really, you would understand this better than some of the people I've tried to tell. This, the tone of, and makes sense with the guys who made it in some ways. Uh, the tone of this is like some of those, uh, very late 90s films shot in Spain, but meant to be America. And there's always like these cool thug guys at a carnival that's meant to be in America, but is clearly Spain. The one movie that came to my mind was that Cthulhu Mansion I watched recently. And mm-hmm. there's something so artificial about it. That's how this feels. Like the drama of the bad guys in this, they do not feel American, even though they are probably all American actors. It's just through this weird filter of like Euro trash almost, which made it more entertaining to me. Um, so it's a little bonkers on that tonally, but it is crazy because you basically have this guy. He is in the opening scene. He's stu- there's been a fire in a house. I think it's related to the first film. And there's a little girl who has been, a you know, is found abandoned by the blind guy from the first film. And he, you know, uh, becomes her father figure in the past obviously you know the the difference between these two films has raised her has trained her to be you know elite and be able to defend herself and he he's super strict but he seems like a nicer guy still the same kind of quiet and you know uh, intense character but then of course you introduce some bad people and what the movie then tries to do and this is the part that you know if you look at it through the political veil there's nothing i could do to defend this thing but on an entertainment level i did find it entertaining um but they just try to keep making the other people even worse so we can keep watching because if you start thinking about the first film that you cannot go very far because you go wait a minute he was grooming and abducting abducting and then grooming woman in the first one and then using a turkey baster to try to inseminate them what the fuck is going on how on earth is are we meant to see him as heroic and yet somehow you do forget about it because you're watching they're not alluding to that film in this film they're trying to not necessarily hide it but they're but but there will be those moments where you're watching saying you're like wait a minute (laughs) and it was so there is no turkey baster in this. no there's no turkey baster but it does feel a little weird by the end i gotta say where i was like yeah she is a little kid and it is a little weird. Like, yes, you're her father figure, but you can't help because of the character from the past. You, I can't help go. Yeah, but is where is this headed? How did she I, get there? Who who? He ran across the... her after a fire, and, and like, oh. takes her. no, he he does a kind act in the context of the story. He's doing a kind act, but you can't if you. It's impossible to. It, it would be like us going in the next nightmare. Oh, but Freddy's now a good guy, and let's make him here. Now that doesn't mean it make it for not an interesting, entertaining thing because the concept already is kind of interesting. You're taking a villain from a previous movie and making him have to defend his home, and there's the bad guys in this are so over the top and the final kind of kind of twist of the people who are trying to get this little girl and why they're trying to get the, is so absurd that i almost laughed out loud and just it was just it was just it was dumber than dumb but also fun so i actually weirdly do recommend this for like a late night fun watch but i don't you know in the same way malignant i have no clue if it's a good movie it's, uh <laughs> <laughs> it was it i mean it's definitely one of the craziest attempts for a sequel i've ever really 
come across because that is a baller know. move. The guy yeah, who is literally abducting pregnant women and then yeah. also impregnating other women with a turkey baster in the first like, film becomes the hero of the second. You know, and he's a good and actor, so you know he's a good I, actor, I, and the character's strong. Stephen Lang and anything, yeah. and the character's a strong character. You know, uh, to watch as an action hero, there's some cool action scenes, but I, I think just on a formal level, it's still pretty impressive. Uh, I think all of Fetty's films are impressive mm-hmm. on that, and this is this guy's doing a good job in that mold. Um, I'll do one more while we're here because I know we I had a lot of titles to get through. I really love this one. This is an indie uh, that just came out called "We Need to Do Something," directed by mm-hmm. Sh- Sean King O'Grady. I didn't know much about this except that it was at the festival circuit. Um, it is a, a small family in the opening scene go into this big bathroom. I've never really seen a bathroom quite this big um, to shelter from a massive storm that's about to hit. And you don't really ever leave that bathroom, but you do see some stories from the past. It goes in and out of it. Um, and it's Pat Healy as the dad, Sierra McCormick from Vast of Night as the daughter. There's a young son. And then Vanessa Shaw, Shaw from Eyes Wide Shut as the mom. And there's, it's really about the family dynamic problems that are tearing this family apart. Pat Healy, to me, this might be my favorite thing he's done since Cheap Thrills. He is, to me, like I was also coming, this is me at the end of the pandemic. I'm at the end of my quarantine watching this where I feel like I was about to lose my go a little Jack Torrance. And this character is Jack Torrance from the moment he walks into the room. And there's a great scene where he just grabs a bottle of mouthwash and starts downing it. And I'm just like, that's probably my favorite pandemic moment. I think this is the best movie I've seen come out of the pandemic even though it's never talking about it it's the movie that i will now think of as the feeling of pandemic because it's a family trapped in a room and what's cool about the movie is you're not really sure what's happening outside is it a storm is it an apocalypse it's very cool the way it doesn't really go into it it's kind of serious it's a weird series but there is a and it's not it's it's horror for sure there's some backstory happening with the young daughter and something she is doing on the side with a friend of hers that is like kind of the main genre element that I won't ruin. But there is a jump scare in this. And it's not a jump scare movie. There is a moment that will both jump scare and you'll laugh out loud afterwards that is the best of the year. It is the single... It's one of those moments where you you laugh as you're jumping back because it's so fucking creepy, but it's also ridiculous. And um, I really... This was just, to me, a really nice surprise because I... And I, I think it has very middling... You know, some people really like it. So I think this is an Elric taste kind of movie that if you're on board with trying one of those, you'll, you'll dig it. But... Um, it, 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 you know, it's not perfect. Some of the backstory stuff, I don't know if it fully delivers, but, but the actual just kind of, um, as an interesting look at a group of people stuck together, I found it really, uh, you know, kind of perfectly timed for where we're at in the pandemic. So that's called, we need to do something. That one's on Amazon. We need to do something. And everyone's good in it. It's a really well-performed film. Okay. Um, any more oddball films? I have one more film and then a couple I, TV. So it's up to you. Okay. Now. Go go film, and then I'll jump back into TV. Okay, so this one is the one that you were you almost watched it last night. Yeah, so I texted Eric last night because I'd heard about Gaia. I think that one of our Patreon listeners had somebody recommended did it recommend us, it early. Somebody yeah. um, who said if you're into folk horror and body horror, that it's kind of an interesting melding of the two. And I was going to watch it last night, but then I fell into that WeWork documentary, and then I fell asleep. I know I was mad at you long. because I was like, I was really like, oh, I really want. I actually at first I was like, I don't know if you like this or not. I, I my suspicion is you will like it a lot i it's actually going really high i've been keeping my list of 2021 heart everything i've seen this year of of the new movies Mm -hmm. uh, on letterboxd and this is pretty high now this is like top five or six i it's really it's from south africa i wasn't sure right away it's in a rainforest and you have these two rangers going deep into the 
uh, into the forest on a mission to get kind of look at footage and stuff. And one of them is flying a um, uh, what's I can't believe drone. That. Yes, uh, f- film teachers who can't remember the word drone. Um, Fly camera helicopter yeah. thingy. Yeah, yeah. Uh, that gets lost, and then she, she, so she has to go off the path, and her partner's like, "Oh, be careful, because we we got to get out of here." Uh, and she, you know, kind of hurts herself and gets found by these two, and gets lost, and gets found by these two guys who I believe they're from like Sweden or somewhere. I, I can't remember where they're from, but one is the dad, one is the son, long beards. Really, they seem like they've been living in the forest for a long time, and they help her, and then she gets pulled into their world, and then it starts leading to things like the worshiping of this tree god thing. Ooh. And there's these creatures in the forest that you don't know if they're part of nature. This is, this is like folk horror for sure. Nature horror, uh, environmental horror in the, in the earth vein, because the people who were actually trapped there were envir- environmentalists. And it goes to some pretty fucking crazy. There are some bonkers sequences. There's some really, I thought just really effective um, visuals. I, I, I just found it to be, it's a spell movie. Like as you go, the first 10 minutes is like, oh, am I going to like this? These characters look a little cheesy or something. And then it just kept getting better and better and more layered and, and kind of uh, weirder with what it's actually about. Um, mm-hmm. And by the end, I was totally, this is definitely one I want to make sure to put on people's radar. Cause I, yeah, beyond the person who wrote to us, I have not heard many people talk about this yet. So I'd okay, like I'll see. watch it tonight. I uh, made Gaia. it through all of my weird documentaries. Well, tonight might be bad because you're 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 burned out and tired, like I am. I am you, you might out. need something poppier or fun. But um, I'm back in on evil tonight. I got two right. episodes left in season. You, you two, do so. evil. Maybe I'll do the first episode and uh, follow your heels. Right? Okay. Text. So me. that's Gaia. I am a big fan. This one was really interesting. If you like that kind of horror. And this not, one's I saw it on Amazon. I think on it was Amazon three dollar rental. It's where I watched much. it. Yep. Yeah. Um. Okay. American Horror Story. Did you watch the first episode? I've watched the first three based on you and Dick. Both you and Dick were raving. So I thought, okay, I will try. And and I'm talking as somebody who has been out for three to four seasons and never was going to go back. So So when I talk about me being the type of person who watches two episodes and then falls off the face of the earth, that has been me for the last several years of American Horror Story. Me too. After Roanoke. Roanoke, I kept with because I was like, this has to go somewhere cool. I was all in. And then it didn't. Wait, was that the found footage one? That was the found footage okay, one, yeah, where they I were in the house mm-hmm, with yeah, like yeah. the, yeah. Um, and then I was slightly more interested in sl- the slasher one that they did last year than I had been in a long time. But even still, I fell out by like the third episode. It just couldn't sustain. Freak show, I was out by like the third episode. This one, um, I am now at the third episode and I can't wait to keep going. Um, I think they've only released the third uh, three episodes now. Like oh, okay. it's it's definitely doing a weekly release. Um, I, Wait, didn't Axel have one coming up? I think that I I've seen Axel's. Um, so maybe oh. that was the fourth one. I'm on episode three or four. I've watched okay. up to what they have released okay. right now. If someone had pitched this concept to me, I would have been like, that's the dumbest concept I've ever heard of. But somehow it works. And this isn't spoilery because this is all released in like the first. 30 minutes of the show and then it just keeps going. The setup is that this writer is um, having some writer's block. And so his family has traveled to this really desolate seaside. Hey, Becky, town. He's not a writer. He's a screenwriter. That's not right. He's a screenwriter. Thanks for that. <laughs> All right, we, let's be accurate here. He's not right. He's a screenwriter. Um, and I, I, half half our audience just got really pissed at you right there. Um, oh, myself be, because included. people because people read screenwriters for fun. Um, no, they don't. It's, it's a screenplay so is nothing unless it gets made. Oh, oh, oh! Yes. Somebody with a bunch of them that if they're not made, they're Shots nothing. Shots 
fired there. Shots fired. It's, it's nothing. Yeah. It's, it's not entertainment. He, he is a screenwriter. Screenwriting is still writing. So we're going to go I with know, that. Just... He is a screenwriter and um, he has had a bit of writer's block. He has signed a contract for, or he has this kind of concept that he has sold that Netflix is really interested in. They, they oddly name drop Netflix a lot in it. Um, and so Netflix is really interested in, and he is now um, under the gun because his agent is like, dude, you're going to lose this contract if you don't get something. And so he and his family have traveled to this seaside town in the middle of winter in hopes that the isolation and being in this weird seaside house will will kind of inspire him and he'll be able to just pump this thing out, the pilot out. He's He's trying to get a TV pilot. And he gets there and he's got nothing. And the town's really weird. And everybody in it is weird. And his wife and his daughter hate it. And they're like, this place is just gross. And there are these weird people meandering around the town. And then one night he runs into these two other writers at the bar in town, aptly named the Muse. And they hand him a pill. And they say, if you take this, you will write the best thing of your life. And he goes home and he takes it. And he writes straight for three days. And it's the greatest thing ever. But then his body starts changing. And it goes from there. And it gets really vampiric and weird and talking about the town and it's all about writing and it feels kind of meta in that capacity. Um, but it just goes to these crazy bizarre places that I swear if anybody had pitched me this concept in the room, I just would have been like, that's ridiculous. Um, but somehow it fucking works. And I have loved the first three or four episodes or how many I've watched. Plus McCulloch and BJ's. Oh my God, Macaulay Culkin is so great in it. So Macaulay Culkin yes, plays yeah. a drug addict of some type. He's kind of like a, a and he's kind of like a straight prostitute kind of. He's yeah, like ready a, to give up for a, a fix, you know. Yeah, like he's he's definitely like a, a prostitute in it, um, who's kind of meandering around the town, um, and he knows the town's seedy past and everything, and he's just this vibrant, amazing character, and just becomes wonderful throughout the entire thing like he is like one of the reasons i will keep watching um there it is just phenomenal yeah no i i'm I'm enjoying it the the only thing i am less keen on that just feels a little cheesier to me the one element that and maybe i'll keep improving are the salem's lot looking bold vampire kind of guys walking around there's something out with too many of them on screen at once it kind of looks a little like in broad daylight yeah that's but but it's but outside of that uh there's some really cool stuff and i really like what people are doing for their to, to fuel their addictions in it um and about excellence like trying to be the best you know he's a screenwriter the other person's a novelist the other person uh, somebody's playing music it's about excellence and it's about are you one of the chosen ones to be excellent and i think that those themes are good yeah i'm i'm enjoying i wouldn't have kept watching if i didn't like the first one so all three i've i've enjoyed and i'm i'm interested where it's going unfortunately with that show i'm always waiting for the bottom to drop off because of just the past. So I'm hoping maybe this will be different. Maybe. Well, here's the interesting thing that they are doing is this is the reason that the season is called American horror story, double feature. They are only doing, it's supposed to be part of the season is by the sand or part of the season is by the sea. And part of the season is by the sand. Hmm. So this first part is seaside. Um, it's not, it's not aquatic horror. It is very much like a seaside horror. Mm -hmm. And, but this is only supposed to go to, I think, six episodes of this particular part, which is called Red Tide. The next part is a completely different story with completely different characters. And it is, takes place in, it's called Death Valley and it's supposed to be in a desert. And I think it's about aliens. Um, and it is just a completely different 
things. So I'm kind of excited. I've heard um, that, you know, it goes in a much different direction. So I'm excited to see where it goes. Yeah, I mean, it took two people for me to push play. It took both of you a, mm. a, 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 an attack from both ends of uh, both uh, two people to keep reminding me that this was worth me trying. So I did it, and I agree with you guys. So I'll give you the thumbs up on that. The uh, another TV one that just kind of relates that I'd mentioned here. I only saw the first. Well, I think somebody told me only two episodes up, but I got Epics. I think it's on, and I watched the first four. And that is a new show called Chapel Wait. And oh, I've heard this is great. I really like it. It might be my favorite so far this year. It's um, it's Adrian Brody. It reminded me a bit of um, in terms of tone and look. It, it looks like the terror a little bit. This one's set kind of similar type time periods. This one, um, he is. It opens with him uh, as a young boy and his father pulls him out and is digging a shallow grave and is going to kill him. And he keeps saying it's, you know, the blood begets blood or something like that. And and it's also kind of scary. And then his dad's uh, something happens to his dad. And so he's sent away from this town and their estate, uh, their chapel way to state. And he ends up on a ship and it grows up to be an adult, has three uh, you know kids and a wife who is dying in the opening scene of this on this boat. And he. That's the life he's been leading away from Chapel Wake, clearly. And uh, he gets a telegram saying he's now inherited this home uh, and that he should return with his, you know, his three daughters to try to make a life for them uh, and leave the sea, basically. And this is all within like literally the first four minutes. And then you come to Chapel Wake and you come to realize that everyone in this town despises his um, his family lineage. All the people who lived there, they they were the worst of the worst. And uh, everyone's kind of spitting on him and believes he's brought, you know, a plague to town and a sickness and all this kind of stuff. Now I am going to about to do something that is not a spoiler for 90% of the world. But for me, I knew nothing about what the show was. So I'm watching the first couple episodes with no clue what the horror of this is going to be. But it turns out it's actually based on a very famous thing. And by episode four, so I'm going to give people a chance here to fast forward. So fast forward a minute if you want. Um, suddenly, they, I start seeing characters who look somewhat familiar. And then then somebody mentions the neighboring town of Jerusalem's Lot. And I'm like, oh, shit. holy shit, this is a Salem's Lot origin story based on a book, I think, called Jerusalem's Lot by... Uh, King, so it's like the town next door or something like that. Mm-hmm. Uh, I wasn't that familiar, but because it's called Chapel Way, I had no idea of the King connection when I was watching this. So I watched a good couple episodes, and there's not much horror in the first two or three. But by episode four, oh, you're you're seeing some shit, and I was I was like, oh, this is getting so good. It was such a kind of exciting way to uh, watch that. It would be fun either way, I think. Um, but I was totally hooked. But what really and so he's basically finding out what his family had done and why everyone hates them. And there's very good reason. And you start to see that once the horror elements uh, start creeping closer, there's a very uh, firm reason why they wanted him to return to do something for them. And it's, it's, I, Brody's really good in it and it's um, building in a really kind of suspenseful way. Uh, but what really sucks is so I watched these four, I bought epics or whatever it was just to, so I could watch these four episodes. And then it's like next episode was like a month away. So I'm like, wait a minute, this is not a good TV model. Like I just got hooked and now I have to wait till the end of the month before the next. So I'm not really sure what the story, maybe they did a few and then they're waiting for subscribers, but I do really recommend it. Chapel wait. I, I, I really, I think the first two at least are easy to find, but um, I think you would dig it. It's like I said, it takes a little time, but like the terror did, I think, but um, I'm mm-hmm. it. it's I Chapel wait. The terror. Okay. Chapel wait. 
Um, and I'm excited to get back into what we do in the shadows. I have not started yet. Cool. So that, that might be where my night lands me. Um, cause yeah. I am burnt out tonight. So yeah, I think that could be a fun way to, uh, to yeah, do something soft. Yeah. With some new, what we do in the shadows. So what else, anything else? I have one more show that okay. I watched all of, and I think you watched the start of, and we have a guest coming up soon about it. Uh, that is brand new cherry flavor, uh, which, oh, yeah. Yeah. And I, I got through all, this was actually the first show I watched. You know, we haven't been on air live for a few weeks, and this is the one I got into, and I went through all of it within like a couple of nights because, it, you know, it's got some elements where I'm always like, oh, I don't know if I like modern pop kind of sense, but and then other moments where I think one episode had a Cindy Sherman photo reference, a Primus song, and then there's a <laughs> there's a line, and this will just kill it. There's a line where the director in a flashback says to the actress, "I need you to go full of Johnny in possession on this one." So, <laughs> If I wasn't going to love this, no one on earth was going to love this. And by the end of this, I really dig this show. I, it's, you know, there's moments where I'm always like a little bit, it is a little bit mod, modern in some ways. But it, if you liked Channel Zero, it takes a lot about what I loved about that, adds a kind of almost modern neo-noir LA story. And then it adds the whole thing about independent filmmaking and dream, a bit of starry wow. eyes, a bit of starry eyes all the way through. And I think it's really fun and wild. And there's some stuff in this that is utterly surreal and bizarre but um yeah by the end it's i think it's what six episodes or something um, six episodes and i this is one i started it and it was as you said so fucking wild i got like a half an hour in and it was one of the nights that i was just exhausted yeah. from teaching all day and i was like i have my brain is not equipped for this right now i will have watched all six episodes by the time that we have our guests on um i think it's the next show that we have the weeks, showrunners yeah. coming on yeah, and, and it took me maybe two or three episodes, but the movie the girl makes, she's made a movie kind of like a, almost like a, somewhere between uh, Maya Darren and Cindy Sherman, but kind of punk, uh, you know, um, what are those guys, what are the, the, the New York kind of new wave? Uh, what, oh, the, um, uh, yeah, uh, like Geek name? Maggot, Bingo, and um, the the death tripping films. Yeah, exactly, exactly. It, it She makes something like that, that people see all this potential and they want to adapt it into a Hollywood thing. Mm-hmm. And But the long way she gets screwed. So it's also tapping into the Weinstein stuff. There's a whole bunch of stuff, but the movie she actually makes, there's some twists within it that I really liked. I, that's the elements I thought were really cool, the kind of the, where they find the horror of being an independent filmmaker, being what is the difference between talent and and the system and what gets ground up. I, I just think there's too much in it not to find interesting if you're a, if you're living out here in LA or you're interested in the industry. Uh, so I really dug it. Um, and I, you know, often I'm critical of the Netflix stuff because they feel underdeveloped, I find. And a lot of movies are too long. And But this one I felt hit a sweet spot for it probably couldn't have gone made anywhere because <laughs> oh, it's wow. too crazy. So that sounds awesome. Well, that's oh, it for me. That's specify, they're not technically those punk uh, 80s New York films are not technically called death tripping films. I think that they acquired that, that book, yeah. after Jack Sargent wrote a book called The Death Tripping Films or just called Death. Lydia Tripping Lunch. Films. That's who I was thinking of. Lydia Lunch. Yeah. Lydia Lunch. She was part people, of that yeah. group. Yeah. Um, Nick Zed. Nick yeah, Zed. Yeah, exactly whole, like, what I was collective. thinking. Yeah. yeah. Uh, Jack Sargent wrote a book about them called The Death Tripping or called Death Tripping Transgressive Cinema yeah, or something like I remember like that. that. You, I saw and it on so, your show too, yeah. Yeah, I now kind of collectively know them as the death tripping films. Yeah. But yeah, they're a whole different subgenre. But yeah, that's fun. Um, okay. Well, with that, I also binged some folk horror, which I was not going to talk about because I wanted to save it for our guests coming on. Like I revisited Eyes of Fire and um, okay. Eye of the Devil and a couple of other ones and Transformations um, in lead up to our amazing guests. So let's bring them on. Thank you. 
All right, we were very excited. It took an extra couple of weeks because uh, I had COVID in the house, and so we had to bump them. So we're very glad they could come back and join us uh, from the new documentary film, Woodlands Dark and Days Bewitched, A History of Folk Horror. We have the director and one of the producers, Kayla Janice and David Gregory. How you doing, guys? Hello. Thanks for having us on. Yes, very well. Nice to be back. Thank you so much for joining us again. Um, I know we both had you on prior shows in various versions, um, but yeah, absolutely love talking with both of you. So I'd love to know kind of where this idea came out of. I know you both are big fans of folk horror um, just from talking with you in the past, but how did the idea of kind of making a, an incredibly comprehensive doc come about? That wasn't the plan, was it, Kayla? <laughs> no, no, it wasn't at all. It was it was basically um, we were going to be releasing the Blu-ray of Blood on Satan's Claw. And we were importing a bunch of, you know, we were getting a bunch of extras with it that it had, had already been done. And, you know, just for the sake of us doing something that was our own, that was original, I said, well, why don't we do some kind of little folk horror thing like a just like a half hour thing about British folk horror and where blood on Satan's claw fits in with that. And so David said, okay, sure, you know, go ahead and do it. And, um, at that time I had only been editing. I started doing editing of featurettes in like December of 2017. And so this would have been like May of 2018. And so this was the first time that I had kind of proposed an actual idea of like a featurette that we should do. And David just put me in charge of it. And I had not had that role before at Severin. So it was kind of like a, you know, my first opportunity to like produce an extra. And of course it went wildly out of control. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And, and in a, in a, in a way that was very much encouraged though. I mean, you kept on yeah. coming back and saying, well, we could probably get this person and this person. If we get them, we should probably get them. And at that point it, it, it started to blossom shall we say. Uh, and, uh, and at some point we decided we have to put out Blood on Satan's Claw. The documentary is not even close to being done, the direction that it's taking. So why don't we make it its own thing? And, uh, and at that point, Kayla really grabbed the ball by the horns and, and went for it. Was there a specific conversation where, like, that you had with one of the interview subjects or a particular film that led to that decision? Like, obviously, you're probably finding thing after thing that was interesting, but was there a particular thing that, I guess, in a way, maybe expanded your particular um, notion of what folk horror was? Because this film certainly does that for me. There's a, you enter knowing a handful of movies and having an idea of, especially the British version of what this could be. And then suddenly it just starts blossoming and blossoming and growing. And, and even when the film's over, I'm like, and now there's probably a, like, you know, another 10 hours of this that you could have done had you <laughs> had the, the runway. But was there something of a specific moment or conversation that led to that realization? Yeah, I would say that like in the very big, like the first round of interviews was very much focused on British folk horror because that's what that's what the focus was going to be because of blood on Satan's Claw, but it was also the focus very much just culturally in terms of like when people talk about folk horror, it was around British television and, you know, British seventies films and stuff like this. And so a lot of the conversation, a lot of the studies of folk horror had been very, you know, Anglo centric. Mm -hmm. And so that was totally the focus, but the first round of interviews, everybody was British except for Robert Eggers. And so when I interviewed Robert Eggers, he just made some offhanded comment about like jackrabbits appearing in Native American mythology. And it was like, as soon as he said that, I was just like, 
I started thinking about like, oh, what does folk horror look like when you're not looking at it as just coming from New England, like from England to New mm-hmm. England and being brought from England. But what if, what does it look like when you're looking at what's already there? That's like meeting that thing, you know? And so it was kind of just that comment that made me start thinking like, oh, I really need to look into like American folk horror beyond just like early colonial American stories that are filtering in from the UK, you know? And so it kind of started there, but as soon as we started looking at like indigenous stuff in North America, that's what led me to then start looking at Australia, you know? And, and so it was like, when I first considered going into Australian stuff, it was really through that perspective. It was kind of like, well, if we're covering North American indigenous stuff, a lot of these ideas play out also in Australia Um, And then we started looking at like the slave trade and things like and how that affected the culture in like the southern states, but also in like Brazil and stuff, you know, because they also had like the slave trade and there there was very similar anxieties about the the religions and stuff that were being brought over. Um, So it just it kind of just kept growing and growing from like every time I interviewed a new person or a new idea came up, I would always think I was like wrapping it up. But then there would be like, oh, man, there's like all this stuff that I haven't talked about that somebody needs to talk about now, you know, which so was that I would. Yeah, that was like one of the best parts, because when we think of a car, we tend to kind of think of and you talk about it like the big three, like the trilogy that everyone thinks of is folk horror, which we'll talk about in a sec. But then when you start bringing in things like the voodoo movies, I was suddenly like, oh, my God, they are folk hard. Like I had never identified them as such because I'm always pointing at Wicker Man going, that's what it is. But they are. And so it was such a welcome inclusion to it and really just made it expand to, to kind of a global thing instead of just a cultural, you know, British thing. Yeah. What about? Yeah, but that, so that's how it started. You know, it was just kind of meant to be a much more modest thing. And then uh, it was really the speakers, you know, all the people that we would talk to would have such interesting ideas that I'd be like, oh, now I need to go away and read more books and think more about this thing or that mm-hmm. thing uh, and try to get it in somehow. Um, and so I was constantly doing like tons of research the whole way through making it as I was discovering like new books or new perspectives that I just hadn't considered, you know. So had you seen the bulk of these films going in or were you constantly discovering some of these um, oddball titles as you were going along as well? I was definitely discovering new titles. So like Clear Cut, which is one of the ones that we're including in our box set. Um, Jesse Wente, who is one of the interviewees, he originally brought that up and we didn't actually use him talking about it because he kind of um, was, he, he was kind of like listing it, you know, among a bunch of titles. And so in order to keep the film from being listy, we didn't really include discussions of films, like unless there was like a d- actual discussion around them, you know. Um, but, but him mentioning it was how I first heard of that film. And then Lake of the Dead, I heard of when, um, because Jonathan Rigby had mentioned it. Um, and then Tilbury, I heard of from Alexander Heller Nicholas. Um, I would say there, there was probably like, I don't know, 20 films that I had never heard of. Um, 
That's yeah, awesome. There's some, there's some pretty deep cut ones in here where I look over the titles. And I'm like, oh, like a couple of my favorites that I've always like Demon and Allison's Birthday, which I've always wanted to see. And, and then just when I think, oh, I've seen a bunch of this, there'll be 10 in a row where I'm just sitting there going this Polish film and a Serbian film. And my brain's like, where are these even from? And, and, and really interesting things like Robin Redbreast. Where it's mm-hmm. like you're watching this, you know, BBC recording in black and white. It's not even, and it feels like a black and white movie. And then you guys, yeah, you know, we're talking about it on the uh, Severn podcast that it was actually, you know, color and erased over. <laughs> so yeah, I actually have some stills from it that are in color. I can't even imagine it. It's it, it, you just get used to the aesthetic of something like this. But that's the other thing. Your film, it, it reminded me weirdly enough. The film it most reminded me of a, a totally different tone is Martin Scorsese's personal journey through American cinema, because it feels like this is your personal journey through folk horror. It's mm-hmm. it's like your, I feel the individual, your aesthetic has been built. It's not just a documentary in that neutral way. You've actually added a lot of things like uh, different versions of animation, different voiceover, different po- poetic uh, narrative. How important was it for you to make sure that you were going to add an actual aesthetic of your own, to the, not just your own, obviously other artists, but creating a feeling of something that goes beyond just being, um, I think, a documentary in some ways. Well, I mean, it, I definitely wanted it to feel like it had some character and some some character of its own, you know, mm. uh, as opposed to just being a scholarly discussion of these films. You know, I wanted it to sort of feel like one of those films a little bit, you know, and so. Um, so I know just from doing books, you know, when I would do my spectacular optical books and I always had very limited budgets to work with, I always knew that I couldn't afford like a graphic designer to lay out the whole book, but I could always afford somebody to do these little illustrations that would appear at the beginning of each chapter. And when you would open the book, people would be like, oh, the design is so amazing. It's like I, the design is actually completely plain. It's just that it has those little <laughs> drawings at the beginning of every chapter but it makes people feel like the book has all this character to it you know and um and so I sort of looked at the doc in a similar way when I started doing it I was like what are those things going to be you know that I can add into it that 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 kind of give it the feeling of you know some love being put into it you know and having it not just be like a compilation of other people's films but Mm -hmm. having it feel like its own film you know I really enjoyed that you traced the history and showed how it kind of ebbed and flowed and where it like peaked in the 1960s and, you know, what was kind of influencing it. Um, But I would love to hear you talk a little bit about kind of what the big three were and why those all came out around the same time period. Yeah. So, I mean, like the the movies that people call the unholy trinity. The unholy trinity. Thank you. Yeah. Yeah. Are um, uh, Witchfinder General... Blood on Satan's Claw and The Wicker Man. Um, and Witchfinder General was earliest. And also I should mention that the term Unholy Trinity was coined on Mark Gaddis's, uh History of Horror BBC series in 2010. But I think it was Jonathan Rigby, who was like his partner on that show, who actually coined the term. So I think it's credited to Mark Gaddis a lot, but it's Jonathan Rigby that actually said it. Um, but... Um, and Rigby had used it already in his, uh, uh, I think he had talked about it in some earlier publication as well before that. But, um, but anyway, so he, they isolated these three films as being the unholy trinity in the sense that they saw folk horror films as kind of emanating in some way from one of those three films. Because the three films are, are actually fairly different, 
you know, yeah. Witchfinder General was the first movie that uh, that's, you know, part of the Unholy Trinity. And this is uh, by Michael Reeves, who died tragically young, uh, not long after making the film and starring Vincent Price um, in a fantastic role as Matthew Hopkins, uh, based on the real Witchfinder General. Um who, you know, who's one of these guys that comes up again in some of these other films where he's he's uh, found a way to exploit this situation where he can make money and have um, authority by claiming to be able to detect witches, you know, and strikes fear into the hearts of all the people who live in these like small communities around the country. And uh, did Price get a lot of guff for that role? Because it feels so different than everything before. It's so much more violent. I've always been curious, like, if you took a lot of flack well, I think for it. the guff came from him. Yeah. <laughs> I think, like, makes sense. like, he liked the film when it was finished, but I think the whole time he was making it, he was really pushing back against Michael Reeves mm. in terms of the direction of mm-hmm. the character because it was so grim. And it wasn't just that the movie was grim. It was, like, that his character didn't get to be as kind of ostentatious or hammy as he likes to be. And he wasn't sure how this was going to work. And then, um, and Michael Reeves was a really young director at the time. And, and uh, so they clashed a lot, but I think after it was done, Vincent Price famously like wrote a letter to Michael Reeves apologizing to him. Wow. And the film was great. Um, Yeah. And uh, yeah, because apparently, according to Ian Ogilvy, who we interview in the doc, uh, Ian Ogilvy says that Michael Reeves was constantly telling Vincent Price to like tone it down, <laughs> like, to just be more serious. <laughs> but that makes yeah. sense. It's honestly one of his best performances because he's not doing the the kind of pomp that he brings to a lot of his others, where it feels almost like a caricature. Like this one feels legit, and it's horrifying because yeah. of it. Yeah. Yeah. So, how did this morph into some of the other ones to come? Well, I think like they, they all sort of tap into things that were going on at the time, you know, and they each have like a thing that is a central thing that relates to the culture at the time, you know, and in the case of like Witchfinder General, it would be the connection to like the Vietnam War and the and the Westerns that were happening at the time, like the, the turn that had happened in Westerns in the late 60s, where they started to get very dark and, and bleak, you know, um, and this... Uh, the way that uh, I think Ian Cooper is is the one in the film that talks, Ian Cooper had written a book about Witchfinder General and he talks about, you know, this, this type of Vietnam inflected violence that started to show up in the Westerns mm-hmm. of that era was also showed up in Witchfinder General because Witchfinder General, you can tell, is very influenced by Westerns in a lot of ways. Um, and then Blood on Satan's Claw, the kind of core issue was the uprising of youth culture and stuff that was giving a lot of the older generations a lot of anxiety at that time. And then the Wicker Man is much more around the anxieties about the new religions, you know, about the return to like the resurgence of paganism, but also um, the uh, the turn to a lot of new like Christian religions and things that were forming into cult type organizations, you know, some obviously more destructive than others, you know, but there was like the Lyman family, children of God. And it was like, I had, I'd actually just watched a new documentary about children of God, like a multi-part thing. And I didn't realize that they were actually uh, quite big in the UK. 
So I always looked at them as like an American cult that had, you know, in Asia had some other branch there, but they actually had like a, like a huge presence in like the UK and France and stuff. And, uh, you know, so some of these cults were not just American. They were, uh, you know, they were, were directly happening like at the time when these films were being made, you know? Um, and so it was, so they all were kind of tapping into different anxieties from the time period that they came from in different ways. Um, and yeah. And then that just, you know, but there's other films like, it's not as though the three films necessarily like spawned a whole bunch of other folk horror movies. I think like when we talk about folk horror, it's a term that, you know, has been applied retroactively to these movies. It wasn't mm-hmm. like people at that time were trying to make folk horror movies or trying necessarily to make films that fell into this certain genre. And so there were other movies obviously that predate these three movies like Robin Redbreast and Eye of the Devil come before mm-hmm. Wicker Man, and they both deal with like similar things as Wicker Man. You know, um, it's just yeah. that Wicker Man, I think, had more. Uh, it just Wicker Man just envelops you more as an audience member, I think, because of like the music and the island. I mean, it's really. I mean, as a teenager, when I first saw it, I thought it was real. You know, mm-hmm. because it has the the square up at the beginning. That's like, thank you to the people of Summerisle for letting us into your customs. <laughs> I, I totally thought some real Summerisle was a real place when I saw that movie. So no, they were, I mean, you're British, so you must yeah. have different <laughs> memories of seeing this stuff. Yeah. So, so the, the Wicker Man was not really well known, uh, uh, you know, when I, it wasn't successful when it first came out and, and has become that way as time has gone on. I think from showings on late night BBC and then later on video, it became something that, that re- like proper cult movie, it really grew into something that people loved. And then they'd meet people who also loved it. And then they'd gather and talk about it and have uh, conventions specifically for the Wicker Man and pilgrimages to the locations and things like Wait, that. Wait, you have but- Wicker Man Con? <laughs> no, I don't think it's called Wickerman Con. They need to do it, it on that island. Be. It has to happen. But they do. They go Wicker to Man the Wickerman Con 2021. I mean, like, I need to be there. Wicker Con, yeah. They do Con. go to the location. It's in the featurette that I did for the for the Anchor Bay DVD, where where everybody goes to the location and stays in the pub and and that kind of thing. And back then, bits of the Wickerman were still. Uh, was still there. I don't think there's anything left of any remnants are left of it anymore. Um, well, they're so anyway. all like tiny. They're completely like flattened stumps now. I think. Yeah. It's, mm-hmm. I think it's there, but it, it like so in our folk horror map that we made, we put it there, but it's listed as an endangered site. Yes. Mm-hmm. Yes. Because there's, there's still bits of it when in in the featurette that I did, which a bit of footage yeah. is also in in Kayla's film. Um, and then <clears throat> Blood on Satan's Claw and Witchfinder General, same thing. I, I saw them on, on, on TV. Uh, you know, I don't know that they were held in as high regard as they ultimately were as, as time went on. Uh, now, were some of the folk horrors, because I know, and this is beautifully um, discussed in the doc, that it goes back, you know, well beyond film into literature and a lot of the stuff that was, you know, coming decades prior and even centuries prior. Was like M.R. James something that you were reading as like a kid that would have like, you know, or, or that, that one? 
No, I was not reading Mr. James as a kid. I didn't even know who Mr. James was until I didn't. Like 2012. Yeah. I don't think I did till a couple of years ago when Elric and I, there was a listener who had referred us to a bunch of the BBC shows. And then we started watching some of them. And then I was like, oh shit, this is like a whole nother thing. I've never even, yeah. but like being from- This would have been UK, David's David. every Christmas. You yeah. Know, like woken was up, read a story. Grew up with? <laughs> no, actually not, not so much. It was actually, it was actually Kayla who told me about the British tradition of ghost stories. <laughs> I was like- I was unfamiliar with this tradition and believe me, I would have absolutely loved it. But, uh, but it, yeah. yeah, but it was something that certainly didn't make it to my neighborhood. <laughs> there <laughs> yeah, seems to be a lot of TV. My friend, Sean Hogan is the one who like, I, I remember it was around this time of 2012. I think it was before field in England came out, you know, so it may have been around the time that kill list came out. Hmm. And I remember being at Sean's house in London and saying to him, play me something that is like, so like such obligatory viewing for a British person that you cannot believe I have not seen it. Mm. And he was like, well, have you ever seen the stone tape? And I was like, Mm. no. Mm. And he played the stone tape for me. And I was like, more, 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 you know? And so that, so then he's like, all right, let's watch the ghost stories for Christmas. And so then we've watched all these ghost stories for Christmas. And then he started like letting me watch um, like other play for today and and beasts episodes that Nigel Neal had done. I mean, it was just like this avalanche of stuff, you know, that, and I was like, this is exactly what I wanted. Something that to you and to your culture is considered like, so like, Oh, of course, everybody knows this, you know? Um, and there some of those are mind bogglingly good. Like the beast, the Nigel Neal beast episodes are to me, like when you say folk horror, I only discovered them a year ago myself based on finding the other uh, Christmas stories, but it's just, it feels like a perfect synthesis and it's just the right like length, you know, and it's really, there's something really, they're actually quite creepy. I find oh my all, God. all of those stories. What is the one, and you guys are going to know this immediately, where the woman moves the stone in her yard and then everybody starts bleeding through their skin? Stigma, I think. Oh, that's stigma. Yeah. That's yeah. Oh God, it. that one creeped me out. <laughs> I love that one. And yeah. it's and it's funny because like, I actually have Lawrence Gordon-Clark, the director on tape, talking about me we had somebody else interview him when we were doing the film because i wasn't in london you know so we had sent a camera person with my questions to film him and he mentioned me in the interview because he remembered me interviewing him like a long time before and talking about how much i loved stigma um and he thought he always thought that was so sweet because he said everybody hated it when it came out oh god because it was the first modern one that they yeah, did. and kind of it's more sexuality too, right? It's There's way a lot of, sexier, yeah. yeah. And it, it's definitely, I remember there being like a domestic violence or something. It was like a domestic drama quality going on. Well, it was, it. it was, it, there, I don't think there's any domestic violence necessarily. Yeah. I mean, to me, it was the thing that struck me about it was that you have this woman who's the mom and, you know, they move the stone in the backyard. She gets hit, hit with some wind and then, she spends the rest of the movie in the bathroom trying to not bleed. Yeah. That's, trying, what, that's what I remember. Hide that she's bleeding. And I, just, I loved that. Like as a woman, I was just like, this is great. This whole thing that's about this woman just like in the bathroom trying to not let everybody else know that she's bleeding. And it was her, I remember it being around her breasts too. Like it was oh, yeah, like, like where it the was blood was coming on her, on her stomach. Yeah. It's all bloody, you know, and she just bleeds to death, you know? 
Um, but a lot of it, I remember taking place like in the bathroom as she's mm-hmm. trying to like wipe it off and then put her like white shirt back on, you know, to go up and serve dinner. Yeah. And the blood is coming through her shirt and stuff. And, uh, and I was just like, I love this because this is just like what it's like being a woman, period. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Now on women front, um, I talked about this one on Elric and mine's um, Patreon show Deep Cuts last week, but I have to ask about it because I was just fascinated by it. So while I was watching the doc, um, all of a sudden this beautiful footage comes up that I could tell was shot on like 16 millimeter. And it was just women dancing in the forest. And it was only shown for a little bit, but I was captivated by it. And it said transformations down at the bottom. So immediately I'm like Googling transformations. 1972 and it's on Vimeo. It's a short film, nine minutes long made by female filmmakers in Vermont. And I wanted to know if you had any additional information about that film, because I was, I found it to be so captivating. Well, I can tell you it's in our box set. <laughs> so it's That's like awesome. one of the films included it's on the disc with uh, eyes of fire. Um, but, and it was like, yeah, I really wanted a film like that, even though it's not like, horror and this is one of the interesting things about folk horror too is that there's a lot of films that are considered folk horror or that have been adopted as folk horror that you'd be like it's not even really a horror movie <laughs> you yeah. know? it was it's just, like yeah they're white witches but, but people uh, there's certain films like requiem for a village or whatever is not a horror movie but it's like folk horror people have adopted it as as one of their movies you know um but yeah, tra- Transformations was something that I had heard about from Stephen Bissett. So Stephen Bissett had done a featurette for the Dark August Blu-ray in oh. uh, the UK, like the Arrow release. And he had done a featurette on kind of like Vermont horror. Hmm. And he mentioned Transformations. And so I looked up the movie Um And I don't know much about it other than it was made by like a feminist filmmaking collective at that Mm -hmm. time. Barbara Hirschfeld is listed as the director. Um, Although on the film, I think it's like Barbara Hirschfeld and the collective, but I think uh, since she has kind of taken ownership of it as being her directorial work. Um, But it is this gorgeous film documenting this coven of witches in Vermont. And it's just them like putting their makeup on. And it's interesting because they'll wake up like with their husbands or whatever. And then they'll be like, okay, now I'm going out into my magical day that my husband has no place in. And it's just our place for us women, you know. And it's just them putting their makeup on and then doing their rituals and running through the hillside and it's just, and especially like because the film is old, it it flutters in these really interesting ways too. Um, like there's damage on the print or whatever that makes it flip and stuff. It, it's uh, yeah, it's really beautiful film. Yeah, it is. It is a gorgeous piece of cinema. Uh, I was was curious to ask you like the thrill of the hunt this will go both to the film but then also segue obviously in the box because obviously the film's the blueprint for what to get for the uh, the box set but just the thrill of the hunt of like one title leading to another in your discoveries I guess Uh, one part of it I guess is which you know discoveries you you found them maybe the most thrilling or interesting as you went and then how hard it was to track down certain subjects I mean I, I know I know a long time ago when I saw Eyes of Fire, the one time it played at Cine Family back in the day, I remember 
a lot of people just saying like no one even knew the status of that director or where he was or you know there was very little known about uh it's Avery Krauser Mm -hmm. um so I'm I'm curious about the thrill of the hunt of of tracking down the subjects and the material themselves uh and then we could kind of maybe segue into uh, how the box set you know uh developed from that blueprint a bit yeah, I mean, I think that obviously putting the doc together, you get a sense of like how hard things are to find or whether things are unreleased in your territory or sometimes any territory on home video, you know, because we were, you know, I was scouring the globe for films, calling in favors from people who live in other countries, you know, to try to get me the best copy, like local copies of films that they could mm-hmm. send to me for things that hadn't been released here. And you know, that naturally led into the list that we compiled to make the box set because it's like our, you know, our priority was, you know, getting films that hadn't been released in a long time and getting films that hadn't been released at all. You know, so that's obviously there are other films that that we've got that we just have new versions of, but some of them, a lot of them, it was like movies that had not been released in North America Um, or like in the case of Eyes of Fire, hadn't been out since the VHS days and stuff. But originally that list, because I don't really work in acquisitions at Severin, I do bonus features. So when we first started doing stuff for the box set, I was kind of just making a wish list of stuff and then I would give it to David and then David would like go to work trying to find everything. So David, I don't know, maybe you want to talk about that part of it. So there, there was uh, there was there was like a much longer wish list, obviously, um, and I think Eyes of Fire was kind of the, the key one that we really wanted to get. That was that was going to be the, the real the real biggie in the box, you know. And uh, and it was something where we tried to find Avery Crouch, the, the elusive director, and it came down to the same way that we try and find a lot of people who have left the industry. You know, you start doing searches on the internet or, or, or calling old phone numbers that may have, uh, I think, Kayla, you actually gave me a bunch of old phone numbers from one of the search engines <laughs> or something like that. And I just started texting all the cell phone numbers. <laughs> and eventually somebody who, who knew him basically said, I'm not Avery, but, um, but I, I'm not Avery, but, uh, but I am, um, uh, I, I do know him and, uh, they put me in touch with him and then he, uh, he eventually got back to me and said, yes, I own the rights and yes, I have the negative. And it went from there. So those, that's kind of an ideal situation, basically. Um, a person like him, David, does he have no, is he not paying attention to like, obviously the film world to realize that there's a real cult interest in his work he just yeah no he he didn't really know that at all and he deliberately left the industry behind so um so he wasn't really paying attention i mean we we said you know we were putting together something about folk horror and that his film was like a really important example and he's like well that's nice to put me in with such esteemed company but let's let's see what we can do uh and then eventually he ended up sending us the negative as well as an answer print of his longer earlier cut which is called crying blue sky which is also on the blu-ray in the box um but the but a lot of them strangely enough um were not that difficult one once we actually you know figured out who the original producers were because in a lot of cases it was sort of a national tv company in serbia or or something like that so when we uh got in touch with them they were 
they were like, oh, okay, yes, we have that. Yes, we have the film element and nobody's inquired about this in a long, long time or ever. And so, and so the deals actually were surprisingly easy to do once we tracked down the people who owned them. What's it's, the it's, Serbian TV film? Did you guys put Leptorica on it? Yes. Yeah, Leptorica is on it, but the, I there's, love also that one. Two, there's also two other films by the same director hmm. that he did. That He did them all the same year for Serbian television, wow. uh, 1973, I think it was. And so they're all like around an hour long. When we were doing Leptorica, we knew it was only an hour. And so we were going to have to pad that disc out with something. And uh, Dejan Ognjanovic, uh, who's one of the interviewees in the film. He's like the Serbian scholar. Um, he told me, he was like, oh, well, George Kadevich has th- these other films that were made for Serbian television at the same time that are also, you know, like gothic, gothic kind of uncanny, surreal, Twilight zone type of things, you know? So they're not necessarily folk horror, but they're, they would be of interest to people who, who would be interested in Leptirica. And so, yeah, so we went back to them or David went back to the channel and said, oh, we're interested in these two films, too. And so now we've got these gorgeous versions of those two films that are, you know, even more obscure than Leptirica, but like never looked this good as what yeah. we've got. And they, and they were and they were incredibly uh, pleasant to deal with. You know, when it, when I think of national television channels, that's not always the case. Um, yeah. But but another was surprisingly was Rai TV in in Italy, who had Il Demonio, the the demon, which mm-hmm. is a film that I I was surprised I when from learning about it from the documentary that I had never seen it. I couldn't believe I had never seen this. I think I've I, never seen it. Three years ago, a friend of mine from Israel sent it to me, and it was my film of the year like when i saw it i was yeah. just utterly I, I, I always liked i always liked her in the christopher lee uh, uh kink movie so uh you could you couldn't help but it's an incredible focused scary you know uh folk and and just people uh, it kind of with witchfinder general i can see some similarities but it's the town that is taking on the role of Matthew reeves to take this you know woman down it's it's a really it, it ages uh really well and it's a beautifully shot film but the other one that you know the film that strikes me as being as big as eyes of fire in in the sense of not accessible to get but you may have heard of it as allison's birthday because mm-hmm. you know in that part of the world australia new zealand that's you know a cult movie but the fact that that's never gone beyond vhs in this part of the world is yeah. pretty amazing given how big a movie it feels like when you're watching it it feels like the opening is incredible it's you know feels like a james wan film or something in the opening scene and then it becomes this very focused i had you know ties to uh, greek immigrant culture obviously in australia it's it's a really really great movie so i think i think sometimes with box sets and i find this sometimes with the arrow ones there'll be three films that are very unknown and you'll you'll get it and there'll be one that's you really like and a couple that are like just interesting and there's a reason they might have been obscure and then in this box set there's probably a lot of films that are you know, super interesting that I might not have heard of, but there's also some pretty big, you know, underseen classics mm-hmm. that will, are, are kind of due for their time, which is hard to imagine in one big set to me, I guess. It's kind of mind blowing. Yeah. yeah, well, with with Alison's birthday, I mean, it was uh, well, it was you who who contacted the the widow of the of the director, right, Kayla? But well, it was the it was the uh, widow of David Hannay, the producer. Producer. Um, and so, yeah, so Alison's birthday was my first time acquiring a film. Oh, cool! I got yes. one to get everything. Um, 
but yeah, so I was I was able to deal with acquiring that for the box set. And Mary Moody, who was uh, David Hanney's widow, was totally amazing to deal with. Um, and it was a similar thing as what you're saying about Leptirica and stuff. It's just like she was like, nobody's asked about this mm-hmm. movie. And mm-hmm. <laughs> she's like, I have no record of anyone asking about this like since the 80s, you know? Yeah. And uh, so it was the same thing. We got all the like the... I don't know if we got the negatives or we got a scan from. Well, no, we got we got an in, we got an internegative. The internegative was at the National Archive, uh, so that was scanned down in Australia, and then the restoration is done here by Agfa. Yeah. Wow. Hmm. For each of you, what was one discovery, one film that you were not aware of before you started making the doc, um, but afterwards you were like, "Oh my god, this is amazing." I think, well, for Demonio for, is probably the top one for me, but also Clear Cut uh, was, was an amazing film. That and, looks great. I, from the tri- yeah. uh, clips on the, in the dock, mm-hmm. it looks great. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And that's so Canadian, that, right? Or, Canadian. Yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah. Yeah. I mean, I guess that, I guess Clear Cut may be it for me also because I, like I said, I hadn't heard of it until I was interviewing Jesse Wente and he mentioned it. And like, I love it. Like, Graham Greene. Plays he plays kind of like he's positioned in the movie as like maybe like an indigenous activist who's like had enough, mm-hmm. but you know as it goes on, it's it's like okay, he's he's more like a trickster character, you know, um, and but Graham Greene is so like he I'm Canadian and he is one of the most famous actors in Canada, you know, he's like one of the most beloved, like you know. Um, culturally respected actors and in this movie he's just like such a badass you know like Mm -hmm. he's so um i don't know how else to describe him he's just like not taking any shit (laughs) from anyone and he's like but also the interplay between him and michael hogan michael hogan who if you've seen the peanut butter solution you'll remember he's the dad and the peanut butter solution but also an equally sort of iconic canadian actor Um, He was in the little vampire TV series and all kinds of stuff, but he is the main villain in the movie. He's like the head of the logging company that's up against uh, Arthur played by Graham Greene. Who's this sort of trickster. Who's like this very violent character. And the interplay between them is hilarious. You know, it's like they are, they're both like these villain type characters or whatever, but their interplay is actually really funny um, so the movie is great because it's, you know, it's got a very strong political message. It's, it's obviously named clear cut and it takes place during clear cutting protests and stuff. Um, and it's dealing with like the white lawyer who thinks of himself as like the white savior, who's going to come in and help the indigenous people get access or rights back to their land. Um, uh, but it's also gory. It's got like gore in it and it's got, yeah, like, quite disturbing in parts. <laughs> humor and it's just kind of like one of those perfect movies for our, our audience because it kind of has everything you know yeah yeah you're talking about things that maybe didn't get included um less interest in you know, like specific titles but when you're making the film you know you you covered a a, a, a lot of different countries were there any regions that you just found oh i can't fit this in we're going too broad but but it is still relevant uh and could have been if in the longer version let's say Well, I think that there's, like, I had interviewed somebody from South Africa, a director from South Africa, 
who made the movie eight, but it was like this really rushed interview at the Fantasia film festival when he was there for his movie. And, and it was like, you could tell when I was like watching the tapes back that he's just like, blah, 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 blah. like you couldn't even barely hear what he was saying because he's trying to do it so fast and get Mm -hmm. out of there for his next interview. And I felt like if, you know, obviously like Africa is like a region that I wanted to have covered more. It's really not covered at all. Other than when we're talking about imported, cultures or imported spiritualities to like other regions like America Mm -hmm. or Brazil. That's where African culture gets kind of addressed, but not in terms of like African filmmakers or anything. And so, uh, so obviously that's a a region that I, I wish I had more time to explore. Um, But also in terms of like stuff from the film that we couldn't get, or that we would have had more of if we could have like the Brazilian section, you know, I had, much longer interviews with the Brazilian scholars uh, and Denison Romajo, the director who's in the film. But the problem is the accessibility of the Brazilian films was so difficult because of the situation in Brazil right now, you know, and because the Cinematheque there has been closed down since the beginning of COVID, Mm -hmm. but it's been completely like abandoned. All the people that worked there were locked out and there's been a flood and there's been a fire and there's been like all they've lost 2000 films apparently. And all of the country's films and negatives, everything is stored there. And the government has, you know, I mean, if you listen to filmmakers and stuff in Brazil, they'll talk about how the government just has like disdain for the cultural institutions there. And is like, does not care that the whole country's film and television culture is housed in these buildings that are being like not cared for at all, you know, and now they've had a fire and lost films, you know, potentially even like coffin Joe negatives and stuff like that, you know? So there was a bunch of films that we would have had longer, you know, or more detailed discussion of like in the film, like, um, like us feel as Fogo, um, which was one of the films that we talk about. It's probably one of the worst quality films in the doc, like in Mm. terms of like the footage. And, you know, that would have been a great film to get for the box set. Like there's a bunch of those Brazilian films, like Mm -hmm. As Noites de Yamanja um, was another one that we looked into getting, but it's like all the films, like you just can't get the materials because of the situation with the Cinematheque. So we couldn't get nice footage for the doc, but we also couldn't like license the films to, release them um but that was a thing like but right before making the folk horror doc or kind of simultaneously with it i just started watching a bunch of brazilian genre films for something else like for a different project and that was how i came across those films and ended up including them um but yeah, yeah there's obviously like certain regions and i mean like even spain and france you know there's really not a lot from spain and france in the documentary either i mean you could go around the whole world and i saw one and i'm not going to be the guy who goes hey is this one folk art but i did see a movie only a few weeks ago i'd never heard of this thing and while i was watching it i was like it had images that felt so perfect for this it was called Litan from france oh, yeah. this With guy the- yeah, Jean-Pierre yeah. Mock, and it looked, I mean, I don't, it's so weird that at times I didn't even know what genre it was, but it was a fascinating movie, but it looked, had very Wicker Man-esque, you know, Day of the yeah, Dead. Yeah, so I have stuff. not, I have that movie, and I have not watched it yet, and I, I just saw it, yeah. 
I need to watch this for the folk horror movie, and then I never even got around to watching it. I, I would love it's to hear really when you do. It's fascinating. <laughs> I think you'll dig it yeah, either yeah, way. No. But there's obviously a lot like that. You can never fit. There's so many titles from all over the world. I was just curious if some, because I find for me, the definition, because it's such a working definition and keeps changing of what folk horror, even you were just talking about uh, national cinemas in trouble, you know, I'm, I'm scared for Hong Kong cinema, you know, the future right. of that cinema, given the political uh, climate there. But like thinking about all the black magic stuff and all these movies, you're like, yeah, where does it stop? Like, where, you know, yeah. some of those movies are so about ceremony, but but in those movies, there actually is magic most of the time. And I often wonder in a lot of folk horror, you, you're not a lot of the times you're not seeing the supernatural. There's the implication of right. it. Right. So there's that. And you say ceremony, ceremony for me, like when I was trying to pick like what the parameters were for folk horror, I mean, anything that depicted ceremony Mm. was more likely to be included in the doc, you know, but Mm -hmm. then I was like, okay, I'm not going to have cryptozoology. (laughs) (laughs) That's right. You drew the line. I was like, okay, I'm not going to get into cryptozoology. So uh, and that was a big fight with David, from what I understand. David was very upset about this. He was He's like, like zoologist to make No, no. F- fortunately, we've got another release in the works, which oh, okay, has plenty of cryptozoology going on. Okay, <laughs> Fantastic. <laughs> so where can people see this? Where can we see it coming up, both theatrically and on VOD? Well, I think VOD, there is an October date. What is the o- October, o- October- date? October 26th, it's on demand. Mm -hmm. And what is the release date for the Blu-ray as well? December 7th. December 7th is when this single Blu-ray comes out, but also all the Hornsby hours, the the mammoth box set that we've put together. Wow. And there is so much stuff. People can pre-order it on the Severn website right now, too. Mm -hmm. So they don't even have to wait till December 7th. They can actually... Order it now and then get it shipped right away on December 7th. Yes, I made reference to the podcast that they're on, but it really is a great, and what I say exhaustive in a good way, uh, it's an editor and friend of ours, Andrew Furtado, with you two going through title by title, including all the shorts, every extra, Mm -hmm. every single thing you can find in that box. Oh my gosh. And it really, just for me, that was when I most realized like there are still, doesn't matter how many deep dives you do as a film lover, Mm -hmm. the beautiful thing is there's always this other level to discover. And That's so true. And I think think when, when Kayla sent me her ideal list, that was one of the most exciting things. I was like, I've yeah. barely even heard of a lot yeah. of these movies, let alone seen them. Cool. And so, uh, so that made it very exciting and very exciting that people have responded to it as well. Yeah. But if people want to see it sort of on the big screen um, or at festivals, some festivals now are not, they're virtual. So they're yeah. whatever big screen is in your living room or whatever. Um, but it is going to be playing at Fantastic Fest in Austin. So that's in person. So that's going to be on like Saturday, the first Saturday of Fantastic Fest, which I think is like the 25th. And that's the premiere of our, and that's the premiere of the new restoration of Eyes of Fire is playing then as well. Yes. Right? Oh so, the, so on the Saturday, Woodlands Dark and Days Bewitched plays. And then on the Sunday is the world premiere of our new 4K of Eyes of Fire. Mm-hmm. Which looks fast. amazing. Oh my gosh, I want to see that. Elric and I saw Eyes of Fire literally, it was probably 10, 8, yeah. 9, 10 years ago at um, Cinefamily. 
And uh, yeah, it was it was still a decent print, but oh my gosh. There's still a lot of stuff that looked very faded. And then seeing yeah. the trailer, I think it's the trailer for your restoration in HD just before this. I was like, wow, I'm seeing things I definitely yeah. never saw that. It was still it very faded. Like trees yeah. were just, you know, there yeah. in the background, mm-hmm. just monotone. And so, yeah, I'm excited to see this. That was just, and that was one that I, I'd seen the box cover a million times, yeah. but I had never seen it um, before then. And it's just such a, a great movie. So I'm so glad you guys are doing it justice. But the, but the yeah. doc, you know, for people uh, listening, the doc is like I said, it's more than just a documentary on this topic, and especially at the running time, I think somebody could look at that and go, "Okay, I'll be introduced to a lot of title." There's a real personality mm-hmm. and a voice to this film, and and, and in the same, a similar way that I love your, uh, you know, your, your book house of psychotic woman, it, it feels like I'm on a story that has a personal. Yep narrative as well as an educational bent and i think that's something to be commended and, and probably a, a big reason why you're, it's doing so well and winning awards at festivals it's not just interesting like documentaries are interesting this actually to me it kind of wrapped me up in a bit of the magic that you would hope that a folk horror movie would so really kudos on that it's great mm-hmm. so yeah phenomenally you. done it's really cool so you got another doc coming up Well, I'm sort of, I've gone back to my work in the day job at Severin. So I have, I'm overseeing a couple of other kind of box sets, projects that are very exciting that have not been announced yet. Um, But I get to do a lot more exciting curatorial work like I did with the All the Haunts, the Hours box set. Um, So yeah, so I'm excited about that. Can't announce it yet. I'm also working on my book about Cockfighter still, which is like three years late. Oh my gosh, that's awesome. The spirit yeah. of Monty is with us now. Yeah. Oh my gosh. <laughs> that I, just got, I just got a, a bunch of like a contact sheet of a whole bunch of images that the assistant director oh, like, cool. took images behind the scenes and stuff. So it's like, I still keep getting stuff like as I'm writing it, um, you know, there's new things that are turning up in that time. So it's like, even though I'm like taking forever to write it, I think it's going to pay off in terms of what, what the finished book has. So. Oh my gosh, that movie. And you, you're is- also off to Sitges as well. Uh, where- yeah, so, so as of Saturday, this Saturday, I leave for a two-month oh. tour with my movie. Oh. Wow. Cool. Oh my gosh, that's so exciting. Multiple countries. I'm terrified that like before I even get on the first plane, I'm going to do a COVID test and find out that I have COVID without realizing it or something. Yeah, I was I, like, curious. Like- I never see anyone. So if I had COVID, that would just be... That's just my luck, you know, that I like. <laughs> I was curious how you go country to country right now, because it seems like such a hot mess everywhere. Um, so, yeah. yeah. Is it a little well, bit you have better? To get, you have to get. So I, while I'm my first stop is Fantastic Fest. And while I'm there, I have to get a COVID test within the window in order to get on my next plane to go to the next place. And I think once you're in the EU, I think you don't have to get them between the different countries in the mm-hmm. EU. There's just, if you have your vaccination card or whatever, it's enough. But yeah, so there's all these all these considerations for traveling with the film. But it was just, it's my first film and I really wanted to like go to a festival. Oh my God. There is something, and I mean, I did a bunch of the online fest with um, one of my projects last year. And there is something so magical about watching your work with an audience that it was lovely to have the online fest and I'm glad I got to watch, you know, um, all the festivals from my living room and sweatpants. There was something really great about that as well. But seeing your own work with an audience is honestly the most rewarding step. Um, so yeah, don't miss that by any stretch. Yeah. 
and and the kick and the kinky documentary as well is playing in Sitges. Don't forget about that. You've done another yeah, so, one. <laughs> so yeah, that was like one of the other um, sets that we put out at Severin about Eloy de la Iglesia's kinky films. So that was right. like a, a trilogy of films, that, and I oversaw that box set too. But I did um, with another guy named Don Adams. We put together a documentary about the kinky films, like about what they are and what the key films and the key actors are and all this kind of stuff, what the cultural context for them were. We made like a 45 minute documentary that's kind of like, you know, an intro for Americans of like what the kinky films are. And then the Sitges Film Festival actually accepted it to play at the festival, which is amazing because they're obviously Spanish. And so this is like a type of film that's like in their blood and yet our film was you know mm. was good enough oh. to get in so that was kind of amazing too well I'm also what, why don't you explain what what kinky is yeah i was gonna say give me yeah. the elevator pitch of what a kinky yeah, film sorry. is it's like it, it's like it's a type of juvenile delinquent film that was mm. made in spain in the late 70s early 80s and uh, kinky is just short for the word kinkyero so mm. it was like a you know, a word that was originally used to refer to like scrap metal collectors. Uh, but then it started to become used for like the children of the scrap metal collectors. And then it started, you know, it kind of morphed over time, but that's where the word kinky came from. And so it just came to refer to this type of film that's made in Spain during the transition, like after Franco. So after mm -hmm. Franco died and they had the transition to democracy, it was like this very, fragile time in Spanish history as these changes were happening. And there was this real media fascination with the, the figure of the juvenile delinquent in the news and stuff. And so um, Eloy de la Iglesia made a series of films about juvenile delinquents using all real street kids, real like heroin addicts, petty criminals, you know. And so they're all like acting in these films and they all died before, mm. like by the end of the cycle, you know, they all had died. Like they real life died. Yes. Yeah. Oh my gosh. That's. And so these movies are kind of like their lives, their legacy, you know. Um, it sounds like also like a bit of a precursor to like things like Zulueta's Arabato, which is mm -hmm. finally going to come out. But like, that's about, you know, that's coming out of that yeah. post-punk. What's well, the Arabato yeah. out? It's, got, it's about to get a restoration now. It's a big deal. Oh. Even though like five or 10 years ago, I said to David at a convention, David, you got to put out this movie. And it, what the hell is there about it? I think Kareem Hussein has probably been saying the same thing. Kareem Hussein yeah. is a big longtime champion of that film as well. It, it is one of those movies that gets under your skin because you don't really know how to place it. It's not clear horror. It's, you know, yeah. it's a lot of things like all good movies. I I think you made me watch that on our first ever deep cut show because we swapped and it was like you have to make me watch one and I make you watch one and I think I had you watch Psychomania and I watched yes Arabata. which also is relevant to this conversation yeah. yes it is Psychomania and it was great so <laughs> well thank you guys so much for joining us tonight um absolute pleasure the doc was amazing I recommend everyone bring a pen and paper um because you will leave with a list um a full page long of movies that you then have to find um, so just absolutely comprehensive, wonderful documentary. So thank you guys so much. Thank you. Thank you. So before we part, we have uh, a quick announcement. We just wanted to say that our screening series is back. And um, next, not 
this Friday, not like tonight that the show airs, but the following Friday, the 24th, we are doing an online screening of Psychomania through USC. And it's open to anybody to watch. You can find the link to RSVP on our socials. I love this movie. 1972, just wild psychedelic folk horror with motorcycles. And I'm there for George Sanders. Just George Sanders. It's got toads in it too. There's a lot of frog action. And one it's of nice the and short yeah, it's short, nice, and um, one of the best funeral scenes ever. It's how I want to be buried if I'm not fed to sharks. Yeah, I'm going to feed um, pieces of you to sharks, whatever happens. Feed part of me to the oh, sharks, whatever. and then the rest of me, um, yeah, um, go psychomania with. From my mantle. Just, just toe the toe. On my mantle. Just one of your perfect toes on my mantle. I'm not saying your toes perfect are perfect. Perfect toe. I don't know. Dude. I'm going to was... just have a perfect toe, like <laughs> severed at the right place. I'm not calling your toes, but I haven't even seen it. I, was... I don't know what your toes look like. I was I was a ballet and toe dancer for like you know fifteen years. They're all jacked up. Your jacked up mangled toe is not going on my mantle. That is the first thing I'm giving to the sharks. Your toes. That's how we close this thing out. And that's that's the end of the show, y'all. Um, and for more weird zaniness that does not include discussions about my feet in any fucking capacity. Actually, I think we did. Um, I think there was one where a guy was talking. To, I don't know. I'm pretty sure that some episodes will be about your feet. So. No, no, it's never no? going to be about my feet. Okay. No, no, never, never, ever again. No, I don't know if it is. It's not happening. There's yet. one for people who are interested. There's a really good episode about it. It's right in the middle. You'll have to listen to a lot of them and pay for at least a few months to find said episode, but it's there. I remember it well. Uh, so we've got our Patreon show Deep Cuts for a whole $5 a month. You can get twice the Elric and Becca um, as we uh, go through really deep cut titles. Um, and just to give you a little taste, I watched Psycho Pike last week, guys. Psycho Pike, as in the fish, the Canadian fish, um, goes psycho. And uh, for the rest of that, you'll have to listen to the amazing episode about me watching Psycho Pike. So with that, um, Elric, Psychomania. We're not ending this episode. I'm no, we're not. We're just going to keep going. I'm going to talk about the WeWork documentary. That's Ernie's going to cut it off. Cut us <laughs> Ernie's going to make us be quiet soon. Thank you for anyway. listening. Uh, thank you for supporting and more weird coming up. The Colors of the Dark podcast is a Fangoria production. Producers and co-hosts are Rebecca McKendry and Elric Kane. Executive producers are Tara Ainsley and Abby Gould. Associate producer is Jessica Soth of Amir. Sonic branding by Michael Rodriguez. And, of course, our amazing sound engineer, Ernie Hurtado. Hurtado.